Hello, everyone, and welcome to Next Off, a Victory Briefs podcast. I'm Lauren So, joined by Chris Tice and Jacob Nails. This is a podcast discussing all things Circuit Lincoln Douglas debate, and we'll be publishing new episodes every other week. So I'm really excited for this new podcast. I, you know, haven't done a podcast in a year now since I've been in China. Uh, so we decided to bring back a podcast, and I was just kind of wondering why did we decide to uh, bring back a podcast during these times. Uh, thanks, Lawrence. Uh, reason we decided to bring back a podcast through Victor Briefs is a couple reasons. First, increase accessibility for students trying to break into the national circuit. We think there's sort of a dearth of resources uh, for those students trying to make the leap to provide a public forum for discussions of issues affecting the circuit. A lot of the previously existing forums on the internet have sort of become private or siloed. And there's not a lot of interaction uh, that is sort of circuit-wide. And the last reason is to provide a way of you know, reaching out as BBI to members of the community and give them a forum to directly interact with us and give us feedback and answer questions that students may have. Yeah, and speaking of direct interaction, one thing that we want to mention is that we're a podcast that's really focusing on engaging the community, and we are really asking for you all to send us submissions and feedback for topic episodes, as well as guests that we can have on to interview, especially now that you know a lot of us have a little too much free time. And so we'll have a Google form linked in the description that we'd love for you to fill out so we can get ideas for future episodes and so we can hear back from you so we can make this podcast as useful as possible. Now, before we go on to discuss our topics uh, for today, I kind of want to take a moment to get to know all of us so that you all get a chance to uh, get to know us. Um, so I can start. My name's Lawrence, as I mentioned, and I'm the director of publishing and co-director of Lincoln Douglas Debate with Victory Briefs. I usually work in China because I uh, am teaching public forum debate there, but for obvious reasons, I am no longer in that country. Um, and I've been doing debate for a long time. I even previously hosted another podcast called The Argument Clinic with Martin Sigalo. Um, and even though we don't get to do that podcast anymore, I'm really excited to be talking about debate again uh, with you all. I am Chris Dice. I'm the executive director of VBI. I've coached at PV Peninsula, Apple Valley High School, I'm currently coaching at Lexington High School. And I'm Jacob Nails, also affiliated with the Victory Reefs. I coach with the Victory Reefs Squads program. All right, nice. And speaking of Victory Briefs, thanks to Victory Briefs for sponsoring this podcast. Victory Briefs is a summer debate institute and publisher of debate materials, which you can all learn more about at victorybriefs.com. Now, this episode, we're going to cover a few things, and obviously the most pressing issue on most people's minds is mostly this COVID-19 outbreak. So we're going to spend the next couple of segments discussing uh, some of the effects that COVID-19 has had on debate, both on the debate community, as well as some of the effects that it will have on debate arguments and debate strategy going forward, before finally jumping into one of our new segments called Good Arg, Bad Arg, in which we'll kind of go over some arguments in depth. We'll have lots of recurring segments as this podcast goes along, and we're really excited to try to add new podcast segments based on what you all uh, have for us as feedback. So we'll be back right after this short break. All right, so in our first segment, I think we want to discuss the kind of pressing issue on everyone's minds, which is like COVID-19's effect on the debate community. Now, obviously, 
COVID-19 or this novel coronavirus has had some really big societal effects. And those are things for like medical experts and real people to talk about. But what I really want to talk about is the effect that it's had on the debate community. And in particular, I want to discuss the rise of online tournaments. So we obviously see the championships, like the Tournament of Champions, moving to an online platform. NSDA is considering moving to another, uh, to an online debate tournament format. And we've also seen the rise of student-led or school-run tournaments uh, that are just being kind of, that popping up all over the place. For example, the Strake Jesuit online tournament, um, some coaches challenge tournaments. Um, you're, you're seeing even a student-run tournament. Uh, I'm just kind of wondering, given this explosion in online tournaments that we're seeing, uh, first of all, do we see this as a sort of durable trend where uh, there are just gonna be more and more online tournaments? I think so. Uh, I, I think it was a trend that was already happening to some extent before the virus um, hit. There was a company that started um, earlier this this fall that was do- hosting online tournaments all year. Uh, there was a number of them on Tabroom at any time. If you could, you know, there were scrimmages and uh, other sorts of online tournaments kind of happening and bubbling all year. And this just kind of accelerated it, obviously. Um, my thought is they will be around going forward. I, I am pretty skeptical that they will displace uh, the major in-person tournaments in an ongoing way. I think it's very likely that the TOC will be the TOC next year or the year after that. The Glenbrooks isn't going to go online. But I do think we will see more and more of these tournaments either as in a supplemental kind of capacity or take, you know, as additional major tournaments potentially. Yeah, I agree with that. I was I was going to say, I, I feel like the online um, tournaments were largely inevitable, but the whole outbreak of COVID-19 has probably, you know, jump-started that like at least a few years, you know, two, three, five years even, just because it sort of forced a lot of people who might have just been like apathetic about it before to sort of consider it or actively try it. And so I, I think it's going to substantially impact the uh, the prevalence of online tournaments. Yeah, I mean, so even for uh, public forum debate in China, we've already started running online tournaments there uh, because, you know, obviously no city in China is opening up its uh, schools for a bunch of outsiders from the different cities to come in and debate there. And honestly, uh, we predict that online tournaments will become very popular even in China just because uh, most students in China just don't have the free time to give up weekends to travel frequently. And so opening up these tournaments online is you know, fairly cost efficient for us. It's not like we need to, you know, pave to use a school or anything. It's pretty easy to set up. And it's really uh, easy for students to attend, relatively speaking. And so I think, you know, by every metric, we're, we're going to be seeing a pretty large growth in online tournaments, if, you know, China is any indication of what happens in the US. Sometimes not. But uh, I, I do think that it, it's a good sort of testing ground. But one thing that you mentioned, uh, Chris, is you, you think it won't replace in-person tournaments. Is there like a reason why you think that? I think there are a few reasons. Uh, one, I think there's a social aspect to debate tournaments that students value, that honestly coaches value, that is not can't, can't be replicated in an online tournament. If students are all sitting in their own bedrooms debating each other and never interact, they never get to know other students, don't get to know other coaches or judges. Uh, I think the activity is just less appealing. It's harder to get kids invested in something when they're sort of atomized individuals, isolated, interacting with the community only in these brief periods where they're debating someone and getting judged by them. Um, 
I think the relationships will will drive a lot of that, particularly among coaches. Most debate programs, most people who debate are part of programs that are run by coaches or teachers who have a way of doing things, who have a schedule of tournaments that they typically go to, um, independent reasons for wanting to go to those tournaments. Um, they, they know the director of the tournament. They have other coaches that they like to see on the weekends. I don't know. There's tons of different reasons uh, why I think institutionally there will be a stickiness to in-person tournaments as well. Yeah, and one thing that is uh, I thought was kind of curious is, I, I mean, obviously the social aspect of tournaments was a big part of debate for you know me as well as basically anyone else who's done debate. I mean, if you just read everyone's end of debate posts, they're almost always like, you know, debate may not have been the best to me, but like I made some great friends along the way. And then there's like 4,000 words detailing all of the friends and great experiences they've had along the way. But one thing that I found is kind of interesting is in response to the surge of online tournaments, a lot of people are disparaging them and they say that, uh, you know, they really can't truly replicate the experience of an in-person tournament. And some of them are going so far as to just outright say, you know, I won't go to these online debate tournaments. I just don't think that they, uh, you know, get me the same value um, out of as going, uh, the same value as you would get as if you went to an in-person tournament. And I think it's kind of interesting to see this maybe a shift in the way that people perceive the value of debate, or maybe even if not a shift, at least, um, you know, it forces us to think deeper about why we go to debate tournaments, why we like debate. Um, And I think a lot of people are taking the time to think, you know, maybe online tournaments don't get the same benefits. And for that reason, like they, they just won't go to these online tournaments. I don't know, Nails, do you like think that that's kind of a reasonable viewpoint, like people just straight up boycotting it because they don't think that the social value that they previously wanted uh, out of in-person tournaments is like, just because it's gone, they won't go? Personally, I, I feel like the, the backlash is not going to be lasting. I feel like you got a bunch of people's knee-jerk reactions, you know, a bunch of people who are a little bit, you know, afraid of technological change, um, you know, despite, I think, ostensibly being a progressive community, I think a lot of people are just sort of like, they've got that mindset of this is how debate works, I don't like it being tinkered with, and so when that change is forced upon them by the big, you know, COVID outbreak, uh, I think there's a lot of initially negative reactions. Personally, I'm a bit more of a optimist about online debate. I think there's a lot of positive aspects to it in terms of accessibility, right? Like reducing travel costs, making it much easier to get to tournaments. That'll make it um, in some ways a positive improvement over the status quo. Like, I don't even think I was, I, I debated in Georgia. And I don't even think I was even in the most inaccessible region in the country. Um, but even just getting to any bid tournaments outside of Emory required, you know, multiple hours long travel, often staying overnight at hotels is expensive. It really limited, you know, where you could go. Like I never went to the Harvard tournament, for example, as a debater. It would be nice if, you know, I could just sign up for the Harvard tournament or the Berkeley tournament, wherever they're being hosted and then participate. And it would really reduce travel. I can only imagine that's more true for people in like the middle of the mountain regions where there's like a bid tournament in eight hours or like, what about kids in Alaska, Hawaii, wherever else, right? I think there's that aspect. And as far as the social aspect goes, I guess I'm a, a little bit more on the side of, like, it, it sounds like the way all the older people talk about, like, cell phones and stuff like that. You know, it's like, oh, the kids that are on their phone nowadays, they're not going out in the world interacting with people. Like, and they're, yeah, I mean, like, I don't use my phone very much, but I know that, you know, the, the, the kids that are constantly texting each other, like, they're still interacting with friends. It's just that a lot of that happens online now. It's not that they're forgoing social relationships. It's just that they've taken a virtual form. I feel like a, a lot of these people, like, the, the social aspect of debate will still exist. It'll just happen more online, right, on social media or, you know, texting, you know, group chats, Slack, Discord, I think, is a place where a lot of debate um, discussion is happening now. And so I don't think the lack of in-person, you know, face-to-face interaction is going to prevent people from making informing communities. I think just sort of that inevitably exists. We've seen that already in other aspects of society. I kind of want to, like, talk about both 
parts there. So for one thing, this uh, starting with the accessibility point, like I've heard this thing, uh, you know, this argument made, which is like, oh, online tournaments aren't very accessible because you have to buy equipment, like have a good internet connection, have a headset and stuff like that. And they're like, that proves that online tournaments won't increase accessibility, which I find to be a very strange argument given the just like the obvious disparity between having to spend hundreds of dollars to travel to a tournament versus having to spend like a hundred dollars on a headset um, to compete in an online tournament. And so I found that kind of silly. And then it, in sort of reference to your second point, which is the social aspect, I, I probably disagree to think that, um, you know, it, it is equivalent to the old people complaining about people being or kids being on their phones and stuff. Because I mean, it is true that nowadays, a lot of uh, debate uh, friendships and the social life does exist online. For example, people who only see each other at camp during the summer or only go to the same tournament like once and the rest of their friendships kind of exist virtually. Um, but I, I do think that people are perhaps a little bit too worried about the effect that it will uh, have on uh, the sort of social aspect of debate. Yeah, I, I largely agree with, well, I agree with some of what was, was said by, by both, both of you, Lawrence and, and Jacob. I want to pick up a little bit on um, the accessibility thing, then, and maybe add a couple other considerations. Um, in terms of accessibility, I think I think Lawrence, you're 100% correct. There's no question to me that online tournaments increase accessibility. The cost of a microphone, you know, you can get a good microphone for 40, 50 dollars compared to the cost of traveling out of state to a bid tournament. Seems like it's it's not a comparison. Uh, online tournaments definitely, to me, increase accessibility. The question is what those trade-offs are. I think, Jacob, you're underselling the social aspect a little bit, um, but I think you're not entirely wrong. I think some of the social aspects will still exist going forward. The question is whether it's as engaging of, a, of an enterprise for you know, hooking students initially. I think it's harder when you're talking about an online tournament. Um, but I, I think for students who are already sort of in it, uh, you're largely correct. There's There's two other things that have been talked about that I maybe want to bring up. The first one is the different skills that are maybe encouraged by online tournaments versus in-person tournaments and whether um, that difference matters. So for example, the idea of persuasion, having presence, being able to speak in front of a crowd seems fundamentally different in an in-person tournament than in an online tournament. Uh, I know like persuasion and uh, speaking in front of crowds, those kind of skills are kind of poo-pooed a little bit by a lot of circuit folks. But I think the backlash sort of proves that it matters a little bit more than people have traditionally um, given it credit, uh, given credit for it. Uh, and the next thing is something that a lot of coaches have brought up, which is oversight of online tournaments. There's already a lot of problems with uh, misconduct and things that happen at in-person tournament where there are chaperones, and coaches, administrators everywhere. If tournaments are being hosted completely online and a vast majority of the interactions are completely lacking any sort of oversight or you know, administrative presence, uh, there might be liability issues, accountability issues that are, that are brought on by online tournaments. Yeah, that in particular is kind of serious. I've heard some stories from some of the student run or like kind of unofficially school run online tournaments that have cropped up in the recent weeks about, uh, you know, how does oversight work? Who's in charge of this tournament? How do you deal? How do you respond to these um, issues? And I, I'm not sure if that's like 
I don't think that will like severely hinder the growth of online tournaments, but it is just something that I think, you know, we have to keep in mind and provide a solution to uh, eventually. Because I'm sure there one exists. I just don't know what it is at, at the moment. To be fair, I think a lot of those concerns were as much to do with the student run nature of those recent, you know, scrimmage tournaments as with the online aspect. One thing that I think will make it a little bit easier going forward in, you know, in, future years is right now everyone's a little bit hamstrung by being you know stuck at home quarantine at the very least out of school in most places i imagine that if this becomes a recurring trend you know online tournaments are, do end up being here to stay that probably most of these rounds will take place in school you know you'll show up on saturday with your team and you'll debate say using the school wi-fi um in a more public location that i think provides at least a little bit more accountability right presumably your coach will be there something to that effect and i think that probably resolves some of the concerns that people have right now with you know, someone debating in their bedroom on their home Wi-Fi where it might not be reliable or they might not be accountable. I think it, it really is the middle ground of you're doing it in a public location, which I think more of the tournaments will be in the future. And that probably resolves some of the concerns. That's fair. And I can see someone pushing back on that being like, you know, what if you don't have a school that supports debate um, or lets you use their facilities? But I imagine that that's already hindering a lot of people from participating now because if your school doesn't support debate, you're probably an independent that can't go to very many tournaments anyways. So I I do think that probably alleviates some good portion of that criticism. I have a question for y'all. How long do you think it is, if ever, till we see a fully online TOC bid tournament? Like a semis or quarters bid that happens entirely I think it will be... I'm kind of interested in the concept of that. I think it will be years, like five to 10 years, maybe. Um, I think, so full disclosure, I am on the TOC committee. And without getting into naming names, I think there's a good Mm. chunk of that committee that's pretty against online tournaments as a a general rule. Um, There are certainly members of the committee that are very much for them. So I think it probably depends on over the next couple of years, how the community in general reacts to online tournaments, whether students sort of vote with their feet and start attending them in large numbers. I think that would sort of force the hand of the TOC committee to a certain extent. If you know coaches and students all over the country are attending them, maybe attending them more than in-person tournaments, I think that would necessitate a shift. But I definitely think there's reluctance, at least right now. I find that unfortunate. I feel like it'd be nice if there were at least a, like a subset of the tournaments were online. Because I think it would at least ameliorate a lot of the, the current politics of you know the geographical spacing of bids and which regions have the most access to the most bids with the least travel. If any region could at least attend a few of the bid tournaments because they're online, then I think that definitely does a little bit to level the playing field. That seems true. I, I remember a few years ago where um, I had literally nothing better to do. So I did a breakdown of bids by region and and then uh, I think Keenan Anderson then took that data and then used it to show, uh, you know, how many bids a region got relative to how many bids their region had available to them. And it's just so obvious that those regional disparities were just like massive. And yeah, a, a few small bid tournaments online would help reduce that. It would also help increase the quality of those tournaments since they can, instead of having to pay huge overhead costs to use facilities, they could redirect some of that money towards hiring judges, judges that overall increase the quality of the tournament that otherwise wouldn't attend. And that might be also another uh, nice side effect of running some bid tournaments online is it actually might improve the judging pool relative to some of the semis and finals bids tournaments that exist now. So I largely agree, but one one piece, uh, one pushback, I think, on the effect that 
moving to online bid tournaments would have. So Jacob, you say that it would help improve access for regions that typically don't have tournaments. I, it might also have the effect though of nationalizing any tournament. Like one, one benefit of the fact that there is, um, it is harder to get to some tournaments that you can't travel to every tournament in the country whenever you want is that some regional tournaments are truly regional and people from those regions are the ones who benefit from the bids at those tournaments. Uh, there wouldn't be, unless you put, you know, geographical restrictions on who can, who can enter, which I guess is a solution, that kind of, of friction to entering the tournament that's online. So it could just lead to a further concentration of bids to the same schools that are racking up tons of bids now. If instead of being restricted by entry limits and the number of coaches that they have who can attend tournaments on a weekend, they can send three kids to, you know, five different online tournaments that are happening and win all of them. Uh, that could have a, a negative effect in terms of distributing bids more equitably. Interesting. That's a fair point. Well, I, I'll, let me toss out a quick thought first, and then I'll, I'll, I want to hear Nails's response. I, I just don't know how many big schools would really want to do that. I mean, so I'll I'll uh, loosely speak for Harvard here because I work for them, but don't represent them. Um, I, I just don't see a world in which Harker would like ever want to send like, uh, you know, if, if they could send mo more of their kids to a big Octus bid tournament in person and then like, uh, you know, I think they'd rather do that than send some of their students to random online tournaments with, with semis bids at best on the same weekend. It seems like, uh, you know, those big schools want to concentrate their resources in areas and very rarely do big schools um, split their entries so heavily and if they do right now most of the time it's because they're sending like their very young debaters to smaller regional tournaments where the competition isn't as intense um uh just so that you know their older varsity debaters can go to the larger tournaments um i'm not sure if that would like drastically increase in a world where uh online tournaments existed but I, i'm curious to hear what nails's response to that is to me it it's seeming a little bit reminiscent of the electoral college debate you know where you could have the you know the purely sort of national model where everyone has sort of equal access to the tournaments, or you could have some sort of protections in place geographically to make sure every region has, you know, some amount of influence. And, you know, obviously I don't think the electoral college is a particularly good model. And so it does give me a little bit, you know, skepticism for thinking that like, it's important that we protect say an equal number of regions having access to bids. Cause while there might be say, um, just like picking around a region, the Pacific Northwest, right. Where there might be, you know, small schools who have access to a few small tournaments who then no longer do because, you know, big schools sign up to online tournaments. At the, on the flip side of that, there's also probably small schools in large populated areas, you know, like the, the Dallas or Houston area, the Los Angeles area, New York, et cetera, where those small schools are disproportionately more drowned out because the large schools are competing in tournaments next to them and not dispersing their students. And so, my sort of just default assumption is that it shouldn't matter particularly much where you live as far as your likelihood of getting a bid. Um, like I was saying, you know, Hawaii, Alaska, et cetera, strike me as just like obvious examples of, you know, places to be prohibitively difficult to compete right now. And so my strong presumption is it's probably better if tournaments are more accessible by everybody. And that if we want to have some sort of restrictions in place to prevent big schools from dominating all of them, then that might ha need to happen by other means beyond just like putting the tournaments too far away for the big schools to travel. Because uh, that doesn't seem like the most uh, efficient or effective way to do that. So, qu question for for you both. 
circling back to something we discussed earlier, which was potentially different skills being rewarded by uh, online debates and in-person tournaments. So imagine a world where you know, we have some online bid tournaments, some in-person tournaments. Do you think that's the same activity still? That an online tournament is comparable enough to an in-person tournament? That an online tournament should be a qualifier to the end of the year tournament that is in-person? So there's, there's some coaches um, that I've seen on Facebook and in other places who are referring to online tournaments as like esports. It's not the same activity. It's a fundamentally different thing than the kind of debate we traditionally do. Do you buy that? Do you not buy that? Or do you think, what, what do you think? Well, I guess I'm already going to jump off the boat on the idea of like esports being a fundamentally different thing than non-esports, just sports sports. Like I feel like there's already a lot of parallels between sports and esports in a way that I I wouldn't even treat that as a separate category. But um, more directly to the point, I think the, the type of debate it's most likely to influence is lay debate. Like you were saying earlier, I do think that there's a big impact in terms of sort of what are the aspects of persuasion, person to person versus online. And to some degree, like, there's definitely value in like being able to communicate person to person, you know, aspects of like body language and stuff like that, um, that are worth cultivating. I'm not saying there's no value to doing things online, but A, there's also negative aspects to that, right? And like, you know, everyone has their own horror stories about, you know, the, the local judge, some random parent who voted on like the length of the skirt or whether you're wearing a suit or, you know, random stuff that shouldn't matter. And so to some degree, it also limits out some of the negatives being, you know, potentially influenced. And I think that given, you know, national circuit debate, I think tends to want to focus more on quality of argument and try to move away from other, you know, subtle, you know, persuasive aspects of the debate, then it's probably to some degree a benefit for that. Um, and then I had a second point, but I forgot. Maybe it'll come. To Maybe I'll toss in like a, a, a defense. I don't, I'm not sure how much I believe this, but I'm just curious um, to what you all think. It, it seems like nowadays the opportunities that I have to deploy lay debate skills in person are like much less than I uh, use them for writing or online conversation or online debates and having discussions like video discussions or stuff like that. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, you know, as someone who pretty strongly defends lay debate most of the time in circuit contexts, I'm not sure like how much this would trade off with some of the skills that we kind of want debate to teach lay debaters, especially since like, obviously I don't think local tournaments would move online. Like, you know, the whole point of local circuits is that, you know, you're basically in the same city. You have to travel no more than an hour or two. I, I don't think online tournaments would like really eat away from lay debate in the first place. And to whatever extent that they did, I think it's great that they would basically just be adding more tournaments for lay debaters to go to where they can sort of develop skills that are maybe more applicable to the 21st century? Yeah, actually, that was the, the point that I was going to make and forgot is it's not just debate that's, you know, moving online or as a result of the coronavirus. You know, businesses and stuff are also moving towards teleconferencing, telecommuting, and so forth. And so to some degree, there's actually very much a, a real-world element to learning to communicate over the computer, over the internet, that I think to the extent that you're trading off communicating in person to communicating online, that's not necessarily losing real world applicability given that the rest of the world is also kind of moving in that same direction. Yeah, I totally agree with that point. Uh, business, education, tons of things are moving more and more online. It seems like a skill of the future. Uh, so I, I don't have any problems there. One thing I do want to push back on a little bit though is this persuasion point. I think I would sort of reject the idea that persuasion as a skill is equivalent to the skills you learn in lay debate. I think there's an element of persuasion of 
you know, creating a presence that is still very much a factor in a lot of circuit debates. It might look different than lay debate, but it's certainly still a factor. We teach students to, uh, you know, do overviews in the NR as a way of constructing a ballot for a judge. That's persuasion, even if it's not, you know, speaking slowly and speaking pretty. Um, some of my students have expressed the opinion, for example, that certain types, certain styles of debate may be disadvantaged online compared to in-person. And I want to know what you, what you two think of that, whether that's true or not. So there's been some discussion online, for example, that K-debaters might be disadvantaged relative to people who, who do tricks. Is there a particular reason for that? That in general, as a characterization, the argument goes that K-debaters uh, are much more reliant on uh, sort of more big picture persuasion even not saying there's not a technical aspect to it, that's not what I'm saying, but there's more of a big picture persuasive element than, you know, going for the missed a priori that's number six in the list of 10 blippy arguments, right? There's, th those are fundamentally different things. And one of them is disadvantaged by the lack of any sort of emphasis on persuasion that may occur if we switch uh, completely online. Before Nail's answers, one thing I do want to tack on is one of the ways I've heard that argument is like K debaters uh, who rely on performance and affect that will just like not really communicate well over the over the internet relative to like the in person presence that they'll have when they're you know making their their arguments. I guess I'm not particularly persuaded by that. You know, when pressed for an example of persuasion, like you listed overviews, big picture analysis, those aren't things that are precluded by debating online. And it's not obvious to me why an online speech more so than an in-person speech is less conducive to giving overviews or talking about the bigger picture. So those aspects of persuasion will still exist. I don't think that online destroys those aspects. As far as like the inability to communicate ethos or anything like that um, via an online platform, I'm also kind of skeptical. Like I can't tell you how many times I've shared or seen other people share, you know, that the, the famous 2013 NDT 2AR, um, Ryan Wash. And I've never seen that speech in person. I wasn't at that NDT. Um, I was going into freshman year of college. And I'm sure the vast majority of people who've seen it haven't. And yet that video shows up all the time. Why? Well, because the, the rhetorical impact of the speech is perfectly able to be felt watching the video of it, right? So now imagine that speech had initially been recorded online. Brian watched giving that same speech online. And then everyone watched it you know, uh, virtually rather than a small community of people sitting in the room and then the vast majority of people seeing it by virtue of a video. I don't think it would have any less impact, right? Like we were able to get the, the, the gist of the speech, the feel of the speech, the power of the speech by watching a video of it. I don't see why that wouldn't be true if that speech is happening live and via video rather than recorded on a video. So I think one reason that may actually be true has to do with how a judge will take in an online space. I think part of what makes Ryan so persuasive, not the only thing, but part of what makes Ryan so persuasive in that speech, it, it's accomplished by not just listening, but also watching him, seeing the emotion, seeing his presence in the room has an effect on the way that we take in that speech. And I think a lot of judges won't even be watching really the video of a round while taking it in. They will be listening and their flow will be the thing on their screen. And I think that could have a big effect. I think a lot of judges already aren't particularly watching the debaters, right? They got their heads down on their paper or their laptops. So I don't, again, I think it's not necessarily an online versus in-person thing. I think there's different judges who to different degrees watch the debater versus are just watching their flows or the docs 
you know, some judges are very much uh, following the docs. Bad judges. Well, I like this. I like this conversation. Um, it's like good things to consider. One thing that we should add is like, regardless of whether or not online tournaments are good or bad, it's probably going to be the case that some of you will have the opportunity to compete in some of these online tournaments, especially since a lot of these online tournaments that are happening now are really not trading off with anything. You, I mean, they're just extra tournaments that you get the opportunity to go to. And so I guess we do kind of encourage students to take advantage of whatever opportunities they have as they see fit. Um, and so one thing I might want to ask you all is for some tips on how debaters can uh, you know, effectively master debating online and overcoming some of the barriers to communication that exists and some of the unique challenges that being online has. I know, for example, that the University of Michigan put out a pretty well-edited YouTube video that kind of goes through some of the things that they think debaters should do when they're debating online. And I'll link that video down in the description. Some of the things they mention are, for example, like having a headset instead of using a mic, um, making sure that you know you send full documents in the email chains because making sure that people can read your stuff in case internet cuts out is important. Using ethernet instead of wired Wi-Fi or instead of wireless Wi-Fi um, and uh, trying to record yourself locally in case things break down. Um, other than those kind of obvious things, do you think there are some other pieces of advice that debaters should know about debating online? Those are all good. The only thing I have uh, off the top of my head to ask that wasn't already listed is just practice, right? Like there's a lot of, you know, sort of subtle aspects of debate that you just sort of, that become natural over time, right? Like novices are just notoriously terrible at setting up email chains and doing things competently. And it's just the sort of thing that you get used to, right? The mistake of hitting reply instead of reply all and stuff like that is stuff that just gets hammered out of you. And so I'd suggest, for example, for anyone competing at the online TOC this year, I would definitely, if you haven't already, just have some practice debates online. Like actual, as much as you can simulate a tournament environment, debate, you know, friends, teammates, whoever, uh, online, just so that you get those kinks hammered out, right? Like debating with a mic, debating in your room, the sort of changes in environment that you just might have to acclimate yourself to. And I think with everything, practice makes perfect. Yeah, Chris, you got anything to add? I want to echo that point from Jacob, practice makes perfect, but also it's an opportunity to test all the different components to go into successfully debating online in terms of your like tech setup, right? Know what, debate with a, a friend, have them listen to how your mic sounds, record it for you. If there are echoes in your room. If your sound quality isn't good, it gives you an opportunity to troubleshoot those problems before it actually matters. And those kind of things can make all the difference in whether a judge is getting your arguments effectively or not. And the second thing, this is very small, but something I've noticed in doing online practice debates with, with my students is I think as a debater, you should be asking your judge and the opponent for the round to mute themselves during your speeches and Ooh, same uh, for them. I, I there's a lot of like, you know, you can hear someone typing on their computer because they're flowing your speech, sort of drowns out uh, your speech a little bit. So just being conscious of those kind of things, I think it go a long way. Yeah, agreed for sure. Um, I know that a lot of the teams going to the ETOC are running like full practice days where they simulate following all of the rules that the ETOC sets up. You know, for example, uh, I, like they require that all the debaters be in their room with an automatic coin flip at some certain point in time after pairings are announced and that like prevents some of this cheating stuff and whatnot. Um, I will say, so we just ran an online tournament in China and by in China, I meant I sat in my bedroom here in the States uh, while it was early morning for them in China. And overall, the online tournament went pretty well. 
you know, I was in the States running on a VPN uh, and I had like no connection issues with them. And we were running on basically the Chinese Zoom. I think it is literally Zoom, but just like with a skin on top of it to make it Chinese. I don't actually know what it is. And it worked pretty well. I think some of the cool benefits that we had for debating online were like, um, we, every round got recorded so we can like use those as educational materials or the, all the RFDs got recorded so we can uh, show kids like what um, some judge comments would look like. Uh, you know, the rooms were super easy for anyone to watch because people could just jump into the room code live and be observers and, as long as they muted themselves and stuff like that. I think the only other thing that I might add on is that the benefits of a dual monitor setup are immense both generally, because just like it's great to have two monitors, but also for while you're debating online, because one monitor can hold, uh, you can show what's happening in the online debate, and then the other monitor you can use for your documents and for your flow if you flow on, online. I mean, I think that makes life so much easier uh, if you have dual monitors. Now, obviously, not everyone can afford a second monitor, although there are some really cheap options for like $100 on Amazon. Although I, I believe currently Amazon said that they were not mailing electronic stuff out now, which is kind of annoying. But if you have a second monitor, I think that's super useful. I believe that. I think this is another thing that it, it's going to make online debate, I think, look bad for the people who are considering it for the first time at the end of the year this year, especially the seniors, right? Because you have all these startup costs to really debate efficiently online uh, for like a tournament or two. You know, getting a dual monitor, making sure your Wi-Fi is high quality, maybe getting a headset or a mic. Um, but going forward, right, imagine a student who starts their freshman year considering going to some tournaments online, right? It's a, it's a fixed cost. They get the dual monitor, they get the nice mic or headset, and they're set potentially for all four years of debate. And so I think over the long term, those costs end up actually being very low for not necessarily this crop of students, but for um, the next generation or two. Yeah, and, and you know, a lot of people have that stuff anyways. I mean, headsets are on the cheap. You can get them for under $50 for a decent pair. And if you want like a high quality one, you can get a gaming one for a hundred bucks. I'm not saying a hundred bucks is nothing to sneeze at, but compared to the entry fee, judge fee, hotel, travel, and food for a tournament, that's basically nothing. I mean, I remember the one time that I went to a bid tournament my senior year at Grapevine. I mean, that's not even that far away from me, five hours by car. I still spent like 400 bucks that tournament for the entry fee. And that's after I got my judge fee waived. If I put that $400 into investing in to all of the stuff that, you know, mentioned, even the high end stuff, you know, and I could go to online tournaments basically every weekend. I think that's a pretty worthwhile investment. All right. I really like the things that we've talked about. So just like discussing the sort of trend for online tournaments and some of the pros and cons of having online tournaments. It seems like even if they don't uh, supplant uh, existing in-person tournaments, the sort of rise of them is here to stay and that we're going to see a lot of online tournaments crop up and, you know, hopefully take advantage of those opportunities and learned a little bit about how to debate online. So in the next segment, we're going to talk about the effects that this has not on the debate community, but on the arguments that we make in debate. So we'll see you after this break. Right. In this next section, we're going to be discussing the effect of the COVID-19 outbreak, uh, not on the debate community, but more on the arguments that we read in debate. And we're going to mostly be discussing uh, two articles that have been written about this in the context of debate and using those as sort of springboard points for having a kind of discussion about the effect that this will have on our arguments. Um, so the two articles we'll be referencing are 
a sort of post on debate musings, which is a debate blog run by the University of Kentucky coach Lincoln Garrett, and an article called Changing Our Approach to Impacts by Kurt Fefelski. Uh, is that how you pronounce it, Nails? Yeah, sorry. Um, and both of those will be linked in the description. Now, the debate musings post basically is just saying that coronavirus is trashing all of the arguments that exist now. And so it mentions like economy impacts, those are kind of dead. Environment impacts, those are kind of, it, those are solved because there's really no economy. Uh, instability is really high now. Foreign aggression is probably low because of domestic issues. Um, and then the article by uh, Kurt about changing our approach to impacts is basically trying to say that the way that we're gonna debate about impacts now will shift more from the impact uh, and towards the internal link. I think this, I'm gonna start with this, the Kurt article, uh, because I think it's kind of interesting. The first thing that I want to say is that his kind of reason for why he thinks that that will change, he mentions it is anecdotal and mentions the healthcare college policy topic. But the other thing that he mentions is that um, it'll kind of change the quality of arguments. And his example for that is after the 08 recession and people uh, you know, had to quote, change the way that they debated economy impacts. And to me, I think this kind of assumes a sensitivity to truth that debaters just don't obviously care about. Because it seems like the number of economy impact cards where they just read economic decline causes nuclear war is as high as ever. And even though it's kind of changed the way that negatives read impact defense or uh, other people read impact defense to this, whether they'll say something like, oh, it recession proves no lash out. I think other than that, it's not like, it's, to me, I haven't really seen the quality of economy impact debating go up by that much, even in the wake of the 08 recession. And I'm unclear um, whether or not this coronavirus outbreak is really going to actually change the quality of debate and force debate more towards the level of the internal link. And so I'm curious what you, know, you all think about this article and whether or not these predictions will be borne out. I think this probably largely depends on the course that this outbreak takes to a certain extent. If it is you know, on the low end of what the projections currently are, and it's relatively contained, I think there will be some impact in the short term, but probably not the long term. If it is on the higher end of the projections, and we're talking about like a pretty catastrophically bad situation, that's going to have impacts on probably every single person who will be debating or judging will have some personal connection to it. And ultimately, the persuasiveness of an argument is is tied to how judges are taking it in. And I think it's gonna be hard to you know, argue that, uh, for example, you know, pandemic or bioweapons aren't that bad because you know, millions will die, they'll be burned out, but it doesn't lead to extinction, for example. That argument is gonna be, I think, hard to sell in a world where the impact of COVID is, is on the higher end, it's really bad. I think the analogy to the 08 recession is, is not great. Um, most of the people who are judging now and debating now don't have very much memory of what happened in the 08 recession. Of course, it doesn't have much of an impact on them. Um, they were, you know, seven, six, seven years old, a lot of debaters, when it happened. And to be honest, although it was very, very bad, it affected mostly a segment of the population that is not, you know, that doesn't correspond to what the majority of debaters, you know, are demographically in terms of wealth, income, their parents, educational status, all those things. The impacts of the 08 recession were very concentrated, um, and this won't be. I guess I'm a little bit more pessimistic about the likelihood of it substantially affecting uh, the debate metagame as far as, you know, which arguments are prioritized and stuff like that. Because 
I feel like, I mean, maybe not quite of this magnitude, but there have been plenty of, you know, persuasive examples one way or the other before for all sorts of impacts, you know, the 08 recession probably being one of the bigger ones. And I feel like none of them really fundamentally altered debate. Like Lawrence was saying, you know, people didn't stop reading economy impacts. People didn't really that fundamentally change the way they read their economy impacts. The, the thing that really happened post 08 with the econ debate, it just seemed like the neg throws out the 08 recession disproves and they have to, have to have some answer to that, like a card that says this time's different or something like that. And then I'll have, you know, techie spin. And so it might you know, do a little bit to mitigate the size of the, you know, or the value of an econ impact or all that stuff, but it really doesn't change that much. I would like to believe, you know, that the effect of this would be for people to stop prioritizing just like disease only insofar as an existential risk and acknowledging that a disease that doesn't kill everyone can still have, you know, big societal ramifications. Um, because, you know, a million, a few million people dying of disease is still like a really big impact to solve for, even if it's not an existential risk. But like the same thing is true of econ debates, you know, like an economic recession, even if it doesn't spiral into a global nuclear war, also affects millions of people, causes tons of unemployment and so forth. And I feel like I just never really saw very many econ debates uh, at any point, you know, 08 onwards that were resolved that way. It's not like the 08 recession caused people to internalize just like econ recession bad, even if not full scale depression, even if not war. It still came down to global nuclear war impacts. People still read their same impact and impact defense. And it didn't really affect the just sort of like extinction first, you know, metagame that uh, debates got going. And so I'm imagining that's going to be the same sort of thing with disease is on the one hand, Corona is going to be a nice impact defense argument. Then they're going to be like, well, look, empirical denied, big bad disease, didn't come anywhere close to extinction, we quarantined things. And the app will have some level of non, you know, existential impact of what it did cause a lot of damage. But I don't think it's really going to shake things up that much. Um, at least any more than anything else did, you know, like any impact has some counterexample that could empirically deny it, right? Like Russia aggression, you had them grab, you know, Crimea and Ukraine already, Middle East, you know, there's all sorts of examples that um, should have escalated if any debate scenarios were right. And we still see all sorts of those impacts run, you know, year in and year out. And if people want to do that with disease, they already could have pointed to, you know, the influenza epidemic in 1918 um, or other disease outbreaks. And I mean, those arguments weren't like decisively winning or losing. I think you, I'd push back a little bit. I think you're underestimating how sort of personal experience can impact the persuasiveness of arguments. So again, I think the 08 recession is not a good analogy here. Uh, debaters in general, to be honest, are quite privileged on average. It's not universally true, but judges and debaters tend to be you know, more economically well-off than the average high school student in the United States. In the depths of the Great Recession, unemployment was about 10%. So a good number of people knew someone, but probably, who had lost their job or was affected. But very few, I would guess, debaters who are debating now and judges who are debating now really had like a profound impact on their life come out of that recession. That's certainly true for some people, obviously. But I think it's, it was concentrated among certain segments of the population based on education, based on income, based on race. It wasn't widely felt in the same way as this is likely to be. Diseases don't discriminate in the same way that uh, an economic recession generally does. And so I think when everyone's lives have been touched by a pandemic, it might change some thinking when everyone is being forced to shelter in place for you know weeks, if not months, and see images on their TV that are really horrifying. And as a country, we're all doing that at the same time. I think that can affect emotionally how people 
respond to arguments. And I think that has an effect on whether judges ultimately find them persuasive. I don't know, diseases do kind of discriminate, you know, like both in terms of age, but also in terms of like access to healthcare and stuff. I don't think that the average, you know, like young wealthy debater is all too likely to, you know, be at severe risk of dying of coronavirus. And even, you know, if the 08 recession no longer has that much of a, a mental impact on like this generation of debaters, also just hearkening back to when it happened, I don't recall it being uh, like a game defining change in econ debates, right? Like even in the early Obama years, I feel like, you know, people still read econ impacts, people still like, I went for DDEV all the time, didn't really affect me very much that like, you know, yeah, we were suffering from like unemployment and stuff. Um, and, you know, my family included, but it, it didn't really stop people, I think, from making the same arguments they're going to make anyway. It just, you know, added like one more example to the to the mix. Right. So, you know, it, maybe COVID-19 will have like some impact on the debate meta. Maybe it'll like change arguments for the better. Maybe it won't. Um, I'm kind of skeptical that it will, mostly because uh, very rarely have, you know, policy style debates ever been won on truth. But at, uh, at the level of like individual arguments, I'm curious like what the actual effect of coronavirus or COVID-19 will be on them. And I kind of want to now talk through the debate musings article where uh, Lincoln Garrett kind of implies that basically every major neg impact apart from nuclear war is kind of gone just because of the way that coronavirus has affected all of it. Um, and so I kind of maybe want to walk through some of the ones that he mentioned specifically, and then maybe some of the arguments that they, as they might relate to the nukes topic that we're currently debating. So the first thing that he says is like, how trash would arguments be? Economy impacts dead. Um, you know, I, I mean, uh, Chris, you pointed me towards that article that implies that there like might be like negative, what, 24% growth or something, or like, uh, and then like 30% unemployment or something like that, something crazy. I mean, to me, it seems kind of obvious that uh, coronavirus will pretty much destroy the economy, um, even if Trump decides to let up on the uh, quarantine stuff, because, you know, it turns out a couple hundred thousand people dying and evaporating out of our workforce is not great for the economy either. Um, I don't know. What do you all think? Yeah, on the specific economy example, I think in the short term, that's probably true. Whether that's true in the long term, you know, next season, it probably depends on you know, what the government response looks like, whether this is a V-shaped or U-shaped recession, a bunch of different factors. Uh, I, I think in the short run, that's probably correct, though. Uh, what he goes on to say, however, like, so after that, he says, environment impacts solved because no economy. Instability, high. Foreign aggression, low because of domestic issues. I think that's overstating the case a little bit. Uh, environment impacts solved because no economy seems like too strong of an of a extrapolation from what's currently happening. Uh, same with instability. I think there may be some interactions between, you know, the arguments going on with the current recession that's about almost inevitably going to happen and the way it like impacts consumption of CO2 at the margins. But in terms of long-term warming impacts or other environment impacts, I don't think it has much salience in terms of stability, like what we're talking about, the nuke weapons topic. I don't think that's very uh, likely to be uh, to take out those kind of arguments. I could actually see it going the other way, that it leads to more instability. So I could see it impacting, but not not trumping those impacts in the long run. 
Yeah, I was actually kind of surprised. I, you know, did this typical Google search, you know, nuclear war plus coronavirus and surprisingly not that many articles that talk about it. Everyone, all the other coronavirus articles are talking about other things, authoritarianism, like China rise, like the environment, stuff like that. Surprisingly, not that much on just like the propensity of states to engage in conflict during this period. Mm, That's fair. Yeah, I'm kind of interested in how it affects like governmental aspects, right? Like rise in authoritarianism, or at least, you know, general governance authority to crack down to control national security threats. I think that's one potential way that it could affect, you know, society or and or debate arguments. Um, I do agree with Chris, though. I don't, I don't think going forward, it's going to that dramatically affect all too many terminal impact scenarios. Debaters do like to focus on like the very short term impacts, right? Like the, ah, this thing that just happened, this weak non-uniques your thing or makes your impact inevitable like when you know kim jong-un announces his newest like threat of the week everyone cuts their north korea updates and like this thing is fundamentally different until like you know two three weeks have passed and then the negatives to say well no it's not that different turns out it was just like the last thousand threats that he made and i feel like that's how you know a lot of this is going to go is you know if there were hypothetically right like the ndt happening like you know right around now um those sorts of things i think would be incredibly influential right on all the impacts would be how does this short-term impact scenario get affected by the imminent current outbreak of corona that's substantially mucking everything up and i could see it having a bit uh, effect come like online toc it'll probably still matter a lot for you know next year the year after that and so forth is it going to fundamentally solve things like are, are environment impacts in 2021 going to lose to corona solved i don't think so i think you know, it's just like one more analytic maybe a card that the neg has that they can throw out and then they have to answer it and they have to still be in a fine spot. It seems to me that the, in my opinion, the, the most likely place we'll see this impact probably this season, but almost certainly next season as well is with the politics DA. What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems about right. I mean, obviously it's probably the biggest political issue of Trump's presidency, I would think. Um, that are impeachment. And so certainly it's going to affect things like, you know, 2020 elections. Um, is agenda politics even a thing anymore? I was gonna say agenda politics, but I'm, <laughs> I'm not even sure those are, are still real arguments. But Despite yeah, agree, the fact gonna... that they're still red, they do not make any sense. <laughs> yeah. Not that, not that the politics yeah. DA really made that much sense from the start, which will get, yeah. I'm sure, a lot of backlash too, but. Um... That, that... Uh, you're right. Uh, yeah, that's that's uh, certainly true. I think it'll affect politics debates. Yeah, I mean, the other thing it'll probably affect is like, at least on the current LD topic, right, which I guess will, you know, relevant at least as far as online TOC, is obviously like the one of the core dissads was the CBW's dissad, and the big impact of that is just like major disease outbreak. And so obviously coronavirus is just going to be like the hot example back and forth. And then I could be like, well, look, it didn't cause extinction. And then the Apple will say, bio agents are different. They're genetically engineered and stuff. Flip like the that. sides. You're right. You're right. Yeah. I mean, well, and the other thing is, is presume that bioterrorism happened now, like when all of our defenses are stretched thin, like when resiliency is pretty low, it could be arguably a lot worse uh, if it were to happen now. I, I mean, I found like a few articles that were just like, coronavirus is basically a blueprint for bioterrorism, how you could basically just make the coronavirus a little bit different and you would do magnitudes more damage just like imagine the, the lethality rate was like way higher for coronavirus it, while it's a, while getting the same r not transmission rate like mm, that'd be pretty bad i think that's kind of the most obvious implication that this has on this topic is like the shift bioweapons shift da yeah and in addition to that with hospitals 
all over the world, like running at capacity, right? It would really magnify, I think, those kind of scenarios. I think debaters are going to say this. I don't think it's be a very true argument, though. Like, what bioweapons DA says that the attack's going to happen now, like at the height of the coronavirus? None of those cards are that specific. Most of them are about, like, if any of these states, right, the nine nuclear states, gets rid of their nuclear program, then they might start a bioweapons program, and then maybe after they've gotten rid of their nukes, which usually takes a few years, and they develop bioweapons, which takes a few more years, then at some point in the indefinite future, one of those bioweapons might be used. I don't think any of those dissents realistically gets to a scenario that causes a bioweapons attack, like, now. And if that is the scenario, then I don't think the, the NEG uh, has the ability to solve it. I think you're 100% correct, but I don't think that will stop anybody. Yeah. Uh, look at the way people are running apps on this topic, for example. It obviously would take, you know, years, if not over a decade for many countries to fully denuclearize. A lot of advantages that are happening, for example, on the India-Pakistan app are happening like now. Like yeah. they are about next week, next <laughs> month, really high tensions, not things that are likely to happen in a decade, which is a more realistic timeline. We've already like, thrown those kind of considerations out the window. I haven't seen them come up in basically any debate on this topic. And I think it would be strange if it suddenly started happening now and truth won out. But that's fair. So that's but not but, be but maybe there. like they'll but listen they to the truth and gospel that we've proclaimed here. and Maybe they'll be convinced. <laughs> uh, 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 I guess the like other kind of debate route, debate adjacent argument that this might implicate is like libertarianism. Now, I don't think it's been read that much this year because there aren't really topics that are particularly conducive to it. But I mean, it's basically the generic fill and see that everyone defaults to anyways. And I don't know, it seems like to me, obviously, coronavirus kind of disproves libertarianism as a sort of viable theory of politics. And yet, when I Google coronavirus and libertarianism, all of the first results that come up are like the freedom for or the foundation for economic education and like all these other libertarian think tanks that are like, the only solution to coronavirus is you know, less government, like less government restrictions on, uh, you know, who can make medicine and like less government restrictions on uh, testing requirements and stuff. And so it's like less government is the solution. And I don't know, that just seems totally ludicrous to me. I, I don't know. It seems like libertarianism should be kind of dead after this uh, outbreak. The, the thing I've seen, honestly, is just, I and this isn't really that much of a surprise because it's probably how every issue goes. But whatever your political ideology is, it seems like people have just taken the coronavirus and interpreted it within the frame that they already have, right? So the libertarians are, of course, just like, oh, well, the, the vaccines can't pass regulations. And so it's government restrictions that are preventing us from like solving coronavirus fast enough. Uh, you got the, the more you know, neoconservative, right? There's like, oh, this proves that we should have had you know, more closed borders, less economic interdependency. And that Trump was right all along. I've seen that Sad. on Facebook more than once. Obviously, you've got the left-wing takes that are just like, aha, this shows that capitalism is bad. We need universal health care and so forth. And so my impression is just that, you know, whatever everyone's you know, political stances are, it just sort of reaffirms them. Obviously, given the, the way the debate looks, that's probably just going to be, you know, taken to be an example of like universal health care and stuff working. Um, but I don't think like outside of debate where political views are more mixed that it's really going to, you know, kill off libertarianism or conservatism or anything like that in society. Well, I mean, obviously not in the real world, but yeah. I just mean like, you know, what's the 2NR response to like the 1AR saying, by the way, coronavirus proves that governments are just fighting and acting sweeping limitations on f individual freedom, shrug. I was just reading an Agamben article where, I mean, 
unsurprisingly. You know, he's just like, oh, this epidemic is totally overstated. This is just an example of governments using biopolitical control to seize power, bear life, blah, blah, blah. You know, no surprise there, right? The, the person who views everything as just like overhyped excuse to exert state power viewed this virus as the same thing and didn't take it as a counterexample to his theory. Um, wrote the same article we always did, just in the context of Corona. So I don't think it's, I, I mean, granted, Agamemnon's not really libertarianism, but like, and same sort of thing, right, is going to be true, is they're going to make the same argument, they're going to interpret it in the same light, you just have to cut your updates. Yeah, I, I also tend to agree that it's not going to have, a, I think all sides, like Jacob said, will use Corona as an example of why they were always correct, right? That's just how ideologues generally operate, and people who are, you know, writing for a libertarian think tank are ideologues, and um, you know, Maslow's hammer, to those with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I think uh -huh. that here, if you are ideologically committed to a worldview, you will find a way of fitting new information into that worldview. So I think we'll see, because of how obvious it seems to us that Corona pushes back on libertarianism, I think you'll see a flourishing of articles explaining, no, why actually it proves libertarianism is correct. And those cards and those articles will be uh, the basis of frameworks going forward those those articles are so bad though <laughs> uh, I, I like read all of them because i was like oh i'm gonna update our like at libertarianism stuff and then the only thing i could find was just libertarians crawling out of the woodworks to be like <laughs> we're, we're right and i'm just like but none of you have put an answer to like sweeping restrictions of freedom good they just like none of them answer that they just say the other things like restrictions on testing bad and like that's their article it's like Anyways, I, I mean, yes, uh, wishful thinking on my part, if only libertarianism could uh, go away in uh, LD and maybe the real world too, depending on your feelings about it. Um, yeah, awesome. So I think that's a pretty good place to wrap up this sort of discussion on debate arguments. So when we come back, we're going to go to our last segment, which is about good args or are they bad args? Welcome back to our third and final segment, one which we're calling Good Arg, Bad Arg. It will be a reoccurring segment where we evaluate trends or arguments in debate today, and we make assessments about whether or not we think that they are good or bad arguments. Most of the time, we'll probably not agree about whether or not they are good or bad. After all, it is debate. Uh, but we think the conversations are still worth having. Our first topic that we have today is fairly interesting and controversial, and it appears that we don't agree on everything here. The following is a condensed version of the debate between Jacob Nails and Chris Tice. The full version will be available as a bonus episode. Now, I'm going to allow Jacob to explain the argument here because he is the contrarian. So this topic involves judge kick, which I'll define for anyone who isn't super familiar with that term. So you know, in debate, Negative advocacy, you know, like a counter plan can be conditional, which means the negative isn't stuck with it, right? The, the negative can say, well, look, my advocacy might not have been the best, but that doesn't mean the app advocacy is a good idea. You can throw out the neg advocacy and vote for the status quo, because even if the neg advocacy is bad, the app is, even, is also bad, so the app is still wrong. Basic idea of conditionality. And then you have this idea of judge kick on top of that, which is the idea that even after the debate round happens, suppose the negative hasn't done that. Suppose the negative never kicked their advocacy. They continue defending their counterplan until the, to the final rebuttal. Can the judge then 
while they're deliberating decide, the negative did extend this advocacy and they, they never kicked it. But I've concluded based on the arguments that this advocacy is a bad idea. So do they A, vote against the counter plan because the negative extended the counter plan or B, and this is the judge kick answer, say, all right, I'll throw out the counter plan for the negative and just vote for the status quo, which is also an eligible negative advocacy. So it's like the judge kicking the counter plan for you. So that's the idea of judge kick. Now, the, the question here isn't whether judge kick is a good or a bad norm. Um, that's certainly, I think, controversial in its own right in, uh, in the status quo. But it's a more specific question, which is how judge kick relates to permutations. Can we ground this like with an example, maybe on the nukes topic? So uh, to, to, give an ex- uh, to give an example, imagine you know, the affirmative has some advantage that proves their apps a little bit better than the status quo. And the negative has some disadvantage that's even bigger than the affirmative advantage that shows it outweighs the affirmative advantage and actually have is net worse than the status quo. And the negative has also got a counter plan that solves some bit of the app advantage. So, so far, the status quo is better than the affirmative because the disadvantage to the app outweighs the advantage to the app. And the counter plan is even better than the status quo because it avoids that disadvantage while solving some of the app's advantage. So as far as the, the rank order of worlds goes, the counterplan is the best, the status quo is second, and the AF world is the worst. But let's assume the AF has made the following argument. They've made a permutation argument, and they said that the permutation shields the link to the disadvantage. So that if we did both the affirmative and the counterplan, that would prevent the disadvantage from occurring. In this world, the permutation is even better than the counterplan because it avoids the disadvantage while solving all of the app advantage, not just a part of it. So now we've got the perm's the best, counterplan second, status quo is third, and the affirmative advocacy is fourth. So the question then is just who wins this debate round based on those arguments presented? Assuming that the judge uh, can kick the counterplan. We're assuming that judge kick is the correct model of the debate. Should the judge vote affirmative or negative? And that's the basic question. Well, it seems obvious to me that the default assumption held by people that have crossed over from policy debate and you know all those people who've been influenced by them is that you sh- ought vote negative, that the judge should kick the counterplan and thus eliminate the option of the permutation for the affirmative um, and just vote on the status quo plus disadvantage outweighs the affirmative. That seems like the default assumption. Um, my understanding is that you do not hold that to be true. Uh, would you care to explain why you hold such a controversial opinion? I just find that to be, I, I agree with you that that is probably how a majority of people would answer. I just find that to be a, such a ridiculous answer. So if you just like, just like think about the rationale one would give and the, the rationale debaters always give for judge. And what I think is at least probably the best argument for it is that if we want debaters to make logical arguments, right. And if we want to view the judge as being, you know, logical policymaker voting for the best option available to them, then the judge can vote for whatever advocacy they deem to be best at the end of the debate. And the reason why the judge, according to the judge kick paradigm, should not stick the negative with the counter plan, but should kick it uh, if they conclude that it's bad, is because it doesn't make sense for the judge to force the negative to defend a worse option than is available. If there's a better option, e.g. the status quo, the judge can just decide to vote for the status quo because it's always a logical option. But that logic just doesn't hold in this scenario. Nothing about the traditional logic for judge kick making sense applies here. Think about the two negative advocates in the debate round the counterplan and the status quo. Which one of those is better? In this scenario, the counterplan we stipulated is better than the status quo. So how could that judge kick rationale of 
give the negative the best advocacy into the debate round, justify kicking the better advocacy for them and then sticking them with an intentionally worse advocacy, the, the status quo. The very logic of judge kick would flip on its head when you're kicking the counterplan for a reason unrelated to the counterplan being worse than the status quo. And then likewise, you're talking about like the permutation being ineligible. Um, the same logic of judge kick would make that whole point moot, right? Because if the judge can vote for whatever policy they view to be most logical at the end of the debate round, then there's no scenario which the permutation just becomes like an Ill, ineligible advocacy, right? You know, the idea of the status quo becoming ineligible because the negative extent of the counterplan doesn't make sense according to Judge Kick. The judge can vote for any advocacy. By the same token, whether the negative kicks the counterplan or the judge kicks the counterplan for the negative would not render the perm ineligible. If it's the best option, then it just is the best option. Then the judge should vote a permitive because if the perm is the best option and the perm includes the AF, then the AF is correct. Well, it seems like uh, I think Chris kind of strongly disagrees with this. Um, I'm kind of curious, uh, you know, why? I mean, here, I think you're uh, adopting the default position, which is to say, you know, you would vote neg in this instance. Nails would vote af. Uh, why would you vote neg? Yeah, so my intuitions here are pretty strong neg, although I haven't put as much thought into it as Jacob. I could be persuaded. Um, but my initial thinking is this. I think you're a little bit incorrect on what you say, like the role of the judges in the situation of judge kick. You say that the role is to pick the best available policy option. I think that's partially true, but I would add that I think the judge is probably restricted to voting for the AF plan or the best available negative policy option. I don't think that they can vote on the best policy option for the AF. I think they can only vote AF if the plan uh, is the best option in the round. A uh, couple to, to walk through that logic. Walk through that logic. I see the way uh, a counterplan exists to prove that there's an opportunity cost to the app. If we do the affirmative, we lose out on some benefit, or we um, or so, something along those lines. It creates an opportunity cost to the affirmative. A permutation exists to test whether that is the case. It says no. The counterplan is not an opportunity cost to uh, doing the affirmative. So the affirmative is still uh, the best policy option available in the round. Uh, so if the AF proves that the, all that, all that's happening there with the permutation is the AF is proving that the counterplan is not a reason to not vote AF, right? I don't think permutations are, like, like Lauren said, eligible AF advocacies to vote for um, on their own, independent of something else. So if it is the case that the permutation is one, I think that proves that the counterplan is not a reason that the AF plan is a bad idea. So the counterplan goes away as a preferable option for the judge to vote for in this situation. The lack, the counterplan going away makes the perm at that point ineligible for the judge to vote for. And the question becomes the status quo versus the affirmative because the judge should only vote after the plan is the best idea in the round. So it seems like you stipulated the only function of a permutation can be to take out a counterplan. Is there any logical basis for thinking that's correct? Or is that just like a, a debate theory position that you hold? I think there's so I think there's a couple of reasons. I think it goes back to the question of what the judge is doing when they vote AF. I think the norm of topicality and other norms that exist, like you can't read a new AF in the 1AR. There's a general norm against intrinsicness responses to disadvantages, for example, shows that the the role of the judge here is to prove is to vote for the AF if the plan is the best idea in the round. And the permutation only exists to sort of get rid of counter plans as an objection to the plan. Test the competition, test whether it's an opportunity cost. If that wasn't the case, 
if the judge wasn't restricted to voting app only in the case where the plan was the best idea. I think you sort of opened Pandora's box here. Why do we have a norm of topicality? Why is there a norm against new arguments, new topical, new new arguments in the one AR, um, new advocacies in the one AR in general? I think a whole a whole box of problems if you get rid of that norm. And I think that's generally the reason why I think this collapses to a question of whether perms are advocacies or tests of competition, which is a very controversial view in its own right. But I think the majority of people uh, have an intuition that they're not advocacies independent of, uh, that can be independently voted for. Well, so I think the majority of people say words like perms are tests of competition, which just on the face of it rings true to me as a statement. But then everybody hear that statement, it's used to justify some like mangled view of debate theory that never makes any sense, except by being justified by some, that, that mantra. Obviously, none of this bears on new arguments in the 1AR. Those are ruled out by the same restriction of like, you can't make brand new arguments that would apply any other time, right? Like an app that just kicked the app and read a brand new app would just be, you know, ineligible to be voted for by virtue of being new in the 1AR, whether it was a new extra topical advocacy or anything else. That seems in entirely unrelated. And likewise, the intrinsicness um, argument, which I know that's a debate for another day, but obviously I don't share all the assumptions there. Um, in this scenario, we're describing the, the app's perm is just the app advocacy plus the next counterplan. I take it to be that the people who are afraid of intrinsicness think the argument is just like, the app could tackle on any unlimited, unpredictable new things in the 1AR, and that would be unfair. And the reason why the app is restricted to only making perms that include the NEGS advocacy is because that provides a predictable limit. But by that same logic, this permutation is an eligible affirmative argument. It's just standard perm do both. It is the app plus the negative advocacy. But now going back to the, the point that you're making there at the beginning is just like sort of a perm only serves to throw out a counterplan. I don't think there's any basis for thinking that. I think it depends on the nature of the perm and the arguments being made for the perm, right? Obviously, if all the perm did was show that the counterplan was equally desirable in either world, right? Like imagine you had a counterplan that just had an internal net benefit, right? Just the app says denuclearize and the next says counterplan, do a carbon tax to solve warming, right? A perm that just says there's no trade-off, that perm would only have the function of showing that the neg offense of solving warming is equally applicable by the world. But that's not that's not like a, a structure of permutations, that's just an idiosyncrasy of that particular round. In the scenario we're describing, the perm is doing more than just showing the neg's offense is not unique, right? The perm is shielding, shielding the link to the disadvantage, right? And so that goes beyond just having strategic implications for the counterplan. Logically speaking, right, for a second, if we're, if we're just analyzing the, the logical function of that perm in the debate round, it gives a reason to think a world of the affirmative, a world that includes the affirmative is better than just the status quo, right? Because we could do the affirmative, do the counterplan to shield the disadvantage, and that world would be better than the status quo. And so it, logically speaking, it does affirm. And so then the question just becomes, should we impose some sort of like lot of constraint that's just like the app cannot do this? And I think all the arguments in favor of judge kick are going to cut against any logical reason why that would be the case, because we're operating the assumption that the judge could vote for the best logical option. And that seems to be diametrically opposed to what the, the judge is doing to the app here. So can I ask you a question? So does your view of what the judge should do then, um, or the role of the judge in voting affirmative is to vote for the best policy option that includes the affirmative? Is that the rule you'd put forward? So at the end of the debate, the judge should vote for the best advocacy. That means they vote affirmative if that best advocacy includes the affirmative, uh, and they vote negative if it does not. So, but it, it, to vote F, the best advocacy has to include the affirmative. Right, like seven perms are never a reason to vote affirmative. They just don't make sense. So 
stops under this logic, that's the role of the judge in this situation. The AF from including extratopical planks preemptively in the 1AC. Is there no constraint of extratopicality that applies to the arguments that are eligible for a judge to vote AF? So if you ask my personal view, I, I think that the arguments against extratopicality are actually incredibly overstated. Um, but that doesn't seem a necessary component of the argument I'm defending here, just because, like I was saying, same with intrinsic terms, the, the argument people tend to make against extratopicality would just be like, they're unpredictable for the negative. There's no way you could guess what the extra planks are. Um, but in this scenario, the advocacy the judge is voting for, for the affirmative, is just the apt advocacy plus the negs counterplan. Right? We don't think perms are unpredictable and illegitimate because it's the AF plus the negative advocacy. And so even if you thought that you should just throw out all extratopical AFs by virtue of being unpredictable, that wouldn't hold true in this case. I think there are arguments against extratopicality that don't rely on predictability. Such as? That, I don't know, I think there are you know, education policymaking based arguments for the role of the judge uh, being to test whether the AF policy is a good idea standing on its own two legs um, as a model of debate. How do you square that with the judge kick being a true model for debate then? Well, so I think I I would disagree with what judge kick means in this situation. I don't okay. think it's the role to pick the best possible policy option in the round, including, I think this is where we disagree. I think it is the best available negative policy option or the plan. Are there choices? Well, um, the, the, the round being structured around uh, whether the app is a good idea or not. And that's what the sort of, that's sort of the axis around which the judge's decision uh, revolves. But moving, moving back here, I just want to sort of summarize. It seems in general, what, what's come out of this is your belief seems to be that permutations are advocacies, not tests of competition. Intrinsicness is probably good, as is extra topicality. Uh the, the statement perms are advocacy versus test of competition, I find that to be just like, I find that it's just misleading in the extreme to begin with, just because the thing people say when they say that tends to be some implicit conclusion that isn't stated overtly by the, the claim that they're test of competition. Um, so for example, um, I, I thought into the other two, I do think, you know, independent extratopicality is definitely good. Um, and in prison, it could potentially be justified. But I don't think you have to believe those to, to believe my conclusion here. But going back to the point I was making about test of competition, the thing that the app is doing here is making a test of competition argument, right? So it seems like people think that just like only the negative can test competition with the affirmative. And there's, that's certainly not the case, right? The logic of opportunity cost isn't like a neg specific thing or a debate specific thing. It's just, if you do one thing, you can miss out on other opportunities. Now, usually that takes the form of, if we do the affirmative, like yes to resolution, then we miss out on saying yes to some other counter kind of advocacy, right? But the reverse can also be true, right? It could be the case that if we say no to the resolution, we choose to negate, then we miss out on doing some other advocacy, right? And by the exact same logic of like, why does the negative get counterplanned in the first place? And isn't just beholden to the status quo? Why does the counterplan negate? It's because we recognize that an opportunity cost can show something that's not directly your advocacy can bear on the desirability of your opponent's advocacy. That's what's happening here, right? If the app says the perm shields the link to the disad, what they're saying is there's some world where we do the app and the counterplan that's proactively better than the status quo. The counterplan has a unique benefit in the world of the app, not a unique benefit in the world of the status quo. And so it's actually failing to do the counterplan, oh, sorry, failing to do the affirmative that's creating an opportunity cost uh, to do the counterplan because it's the negative 
the negative not agreeing that the app is a good idea, missing out on the possibility of ever endorsing the permutation. And so the same logic of why the negative gets counterplans, of why a counterplan shows an opportunity cost to the F applies to a permutation showing an opportunity cost to just doing the status quo. It's just like exactly the same. You just reverse the words F and negative. And there's no logical basis beyond some debate theory. It was just like, we want the negative people to do this and the F not. And I feel like the arguments people usually give for judge kick run strongly against imposing random arbitrary constraints on what advocacy they're able to each side. All right. So, you know, as much fun as, as it's been to like sit here and kind of just listen to you all uh, go back and forth on this issue, I think I'll probably interject here and say that we're probably not going to, you know, uh, fully convince the other person that they're wrong. It's, it's just hard to do that. Um, but I do think that this conversation was super cool because it at least forced you to think a little bit more about, you know, your views on debate, your views on like what constitutes voting affirmative, uh, you know, is intrinsicness good or bad, is extra topicality good or bad. There's a lot of like questions that are all thrown in together. And I think it, the very least, is very interesting uh, in forcing you to reconsider some of your beliefs on that, or at least, you know, uh, provide a different way for you to think about those beliefs. The cool thing I think about this discussion is, is really how it showed how a lot of the theoretical questions like intrinsicness and extra topicality are so linked together that it's really difficult to have a coherent view of debate that is logically consistent if you don't at least consider the role of those uh, concepts. And I think those will make for really good future good arg, bad arg discussions, especially since um, I know that Nails holds some very contrarian opinions about extra topicality and intrinsicness, something that we might be able to get like maybe Marshall on to discuss as well. All right, I hope these good bad art discussions help you all think a little bit more about debate uh, and help you think a little bit more about how you feel about some arguments. Um, but with that, let's go ahead and move on to the conclusion. All right, everyone, thanks so much for listening to the first episode of the Next Off podcast. We're really excited about this project and we're hoping that we can bring you relevant and engaging content. And in order for that to happen, we need to hear directly from you all. And so one thing that we're going to do in future episodes at the beginning of each episode is have a short mailbag segment where we answer questions that you have. And those questions can be um, you know, about debate arguments, previous podcast episodes, trends on the circuit, or even camp, just whatever you all uh, are curious to hear the thoughts of, you know, Nails, Tyson, myself, and we're really happy to answer all of those questions. We also are really interested in hearing from you in terms of, you know, what guests we should invite and what future content should look like. And so please send all of your questions, suggestions, or feedback to us at the form linked below in the description, and we'll do our best to get back to you all. At the end of this uh, podcast, we'd like to kind of close with something that's not super debate relevant and also helps distract us a little bit from what's going on outside. Um, and so we would like to, at the end of each episode, recommend some media, whether it be a book, a podcast, a TV show, um, just anything that we think you might find interesting. Um, and so this week, I think Chris Tice has something that he'd like to recommend. I don't know what it is, so I'm curious what it is. Got two things, two things, Lawrence. Um, given we're all locked down, tons of tons of free time, we're all in the house, and things are kind of bleak and uncertain, I wanted to keep it light with a couple recommendations. So I have a movie, and then I have uh, some, some game advice. So the first movie is one I had never heard of uh, in the Will, Will Ferrell uh, filmography. It's called Kicking and Screaming, which was recommended to me by a friend 
it might be one of his top three or four movies, which is surprising given I've I've never seen it. Think Mighty Ducks, but Will Ferrell. He coaches a youth soccer team with Mike Ditka and develops an overwhelming caffeine addiction. Um, it's a lot of fun, very light, very quick. Highly recommend. Number two is I'm sure a lot of people have been um, playing video games quite a lot with all of our free time. Again, to keep it light, I went and went a little retro and I ordered an SNES before Amazon stopped uh, shipping electronics. Light, fun, takes your mind off things. Highly recommend Zelda A Link to the Past, the best Zelda game even 20 years later, 30 years later. All right, all, thanks for listening. uh, And we hope to see you next time on the Next Off Podcast.